Welcome back to the Tapes Archive podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. In this episode, we have the Almond Brothers guitarist, Warren Haynes. At the time of this interview in 1992, Haynes was 32 years old and was promoting the album An Evening with the Allman Brothers Band first set. In the interview, Haynes talks about the similarities and differences with Dwayne Allman and whether he sees the Allman Brothers Band continuing. He also takes a deep dive into their current live album and offers some advice for young guitar players. The interview you are about to hear was conducted by Pete Prown. Pete is a veteran music journalist and has interviewed the world's top guitarist for over 35 years. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. Hello. Hi, Warren. Uh-huh. This is Pete Brown from Guitar Magazine. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How's the tour going? It's been good. So I want to talk to you about what's been going on. I think people are starting to wake up and recognize you're playing. Everybody seems to be talking about Warren these days. Oh, well, that's nice. Seems like people are finally recognize you as a fine player in your own right. I mean, are you relieved to moving out of Dwayne's shadow? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, as far as on stage and musically, I never really felt that much of it anyway. More from, uh, you know, the way people on the outside look at it. I mean, do you get tired of the comparisons or? Uh, not usually, you know, uh, Usually, uh, especially the Allman Brothers fans are really fair about it, really genuine, you know. They they figure as much respect as they have for Dwayne Allman, they figure anybody that was chosen to kind of take his place, then they they should have respect for that person, too. Oh, that's you know? nice. But I get the occasional, uh, how does it feel to play Dwayne's licks, which I just say, well, you know, for the most part, I'm not really playing Dwayne's licks. Some of the slide stuff, I have to kind of keep it close to home. That's the way it's meant to be, to keep the, the beauty of the song and the and the music intact. I never really consciously play it like Dwayne. You know, it's sometimes I do more than others, you know, but then there are a lot of songs where I go completely into a different direction. But when you were younger, was Dwayne an influence, or were you more into blues guys? Well, yeah, he was a, a big influence on me. Uh, the Allman Brothers as a whole were a big influence on me when I was really young and in the, like, the formative years of my playing. I kind of discovered the blues guys through the rock and roll guys, reading interviews with Clapton and people like that, and, and Dwayne and Beck and Hendrix and people that would talk about, you know, Robert Johnson and Albert King and Freddie King, and I'd go back and check that out. Because when I first started playing guitar, when I was 11 or 12 or so, it's, it's hard at that point in your life, to have a good appreciation for the blues. It's not flashy, much more subtle, and, and it's deeper. It kind of took a while, you know, when I, st- when I became a teenager, and my oldest brother played the Howlin' Wolf London Sessions for me and goes, oh, you'll love this, Clapton's playing guitar. <laughs> and that was one of the first blues albums that I really dug. Uh, prior to that, I really liked Ray Charles and B.B. King, but it was more for their voices, because I, I, I was singing before I was playing guitar. But did you get off on the rock guys like Clapton and Hendrix, too? Yeah, you mean early on? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, at that point, uh, when I started singing, it was uh, soul music, Memphis and Motown. Of course, we're talking about, you know, when I was like eight or nine years old. Wow. At that point, I wasn't playing guitar, and I wasn't into rock and roll music, so to speak. Uh, I wouldn't get into it for a few more years. 
but I would sit in my room and try and sing like Wilson Pickett, you know. Wow. But then when I was like 11 or so, I started getting this desire to play guitar because I was having the same desire to be a part of rock and roll. That, that's when I really started experiencing that whole thing. Uh-huh. Did you ever go see the original Almonds or meet Dwayne or anything like that? No. When Dwayne died, I was 11, so I, I was pretty young uh, as far as going to concerts. Where I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, you had to travel several hours to see most good concerts. You know, I got to see a few good shows in Asheville, but a lot of them skipped it and went straight to Atlanta or Charlotte. And so you'd have to drive three hours or five hours to see a good show. So I never saw the Allman Brothers. You know, I never saw Hendrix or Led Zeppelin or a lot of the bands that I would like to have seen. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of weird, you know? Yeah, it's too young. But, uh, you know, I mean, I definitely... <laughs> listen by share. Uh-huh. Since you're, you're playing all the, you know, all the old songs and the new songs, I mean, what would you say technically or musically is the difference between your lead and slide playing and Dwayne's style and his approach to a song? I would say there are more similarities in the slide play. As far as the differences, the main difference, uh, let's stay with the slide playing for a minute, the main difference is that I play mostly in standard tuning. And Dwayne always played like in open tunings. Really? I, I thought he played standard. He The only thing he ever played in standard was Dream. He, he played that half regular guitar and half slide. And that's the only slide solo that he played on an Allman Brothers record that wasn't in an open tuning. So I make a conscious effort since I learned to play in standard. You know, I play both open tunings and standard tunings. But I make a conscious effort to search for a new voice. And it's easier to do with standard tuning because not many people do it. And there are more there are more uh, ideas that are open, that are reachable in standard tuning. You can't do an open tuning, you know. Like, yeah. uh, open tunings are more limited. They're, they're cool in the, in the respect that they have these great harmonic. You get these overtones in open tunings that you can't get in standard tunings. You can get them in certain positions. Is standard harder to, to master? I mean... I think so, yeah. Uh, it's harder to do, but it, it leaves you uh, more options. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's better for me. I still love playing in open tunings, but I very seldom play on stage that way. How about your lead playing and Dwayne's? I think my lead playing is a lot different in, in the ways that I've listened to so many other guys that he either didn't listen to or didn't have a chance to listen to. Uh, because when Dwayne died in 71, I was just starting to pick up the guitar. So everybody I heard over the next eight or ten years was very important to me. And a lot of these people would be people that he never heard. Did you go into like a fusion thing? or? Uh, yeah, I was I was really into uh, the, the fusion type thing for a while. And, uh, you know, the guitar players that I dug... In addition to the blues rock type guitar players, you know, that we've already kind of talked about, I got into uh, McLaughlin a whole lot. And I really liked Steve Howe a lot. You know, of course, Jeff Beck, one of my all-time favorite guitar Mm -hmm. players, you know. And truthfully, Beck's playing didn't mature to the level that it has matured to until after 71. Dwayne never got to hear Blow by Blow or Wired. And those two amazing guitar records, especially Blow by Blow. What did those albums do for your playing? Just opened my eyes to a lot of new directions that you could go with the guitar tonally and musically. I mean, that album, Blow by Blow, I'm speaking of, in the same way that Fillmore East was, there's just so much guitar on them. You know, you can sit for weeks and weeks and constantly hear new things. There are not many 
records that offer that much guitar for your listening dog. That's for sure. You know? So when you're a kid and you're learning everything that comes down the pike, then it's it's really important to have records like that. Another one for me was uh, Steely Dan, The Royal Scan. Oh, yeah. Which is a great guitar record. Larry Carlton. You know, and for a long time, I didn't realize who was playing what because on that album, they just list the guitar player. They don't say who's playing the solo. A lot of that stuff I didn't find out till later when CDs came out. They started uh, going a little deeper into it, like on the, the best of and the decade of hits and stuff like that. They would actually say who played the solo. And then I read later that Carlton played most all the solos on Royal Scam, and he's a great player. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, that album is just, that's, of all the Steely Dan records, it's more guitar yeah. than any of them. You know? That's a great one. How, what's the difference between your playing and Dickie's playing on lead and slide? When Dickie plays slide, when he plays electric slide, which is not very often, uh-huh. he plays it in open E. And when he plays acoustic slide, which is what he prefers, he plays in, in either open E or in open G. And he has uh, a lot of, like, uh, the real old, traditional influence, Robert Johnson and Willie McTell, and, you know, uh, he really studied and studies the that old, kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, old blues. Yeah, and uh, he really likes the acoustic-type blues, uh, where I listened to a lot of that stuff but didn't learn as much of it. Uh, a lot of the, the listening that I do, I just like to learn through osmosis. I like stuff to be playing, and then I, I get little glimpses here and there, but... As far as the acoustic blues, I never spent a whole lot of time dissecting it and learning lick for lick what they were playing. You know, right. it was more of a, of a feel thing to me. Dickie doesn't play that much electric slide anymore, like I was saying. As far as the lead playing, there are a lot of differences, although in my formative years of learning to play guitar, I must admit that his sense of melody made uh, an impact on myself, you know. Uh, because he's one of those players that has a, a really strong sense of melody that uh, in some ways has been lost through the years. When guitar players got technically more and more proficient, they seemed to forget about the melody. Forget how important the melody really is. That's for sure. But the, the major differences uh, obviously would be similar to what I said about Dwayne, that uh, I listen to a lot of guys that they never listened to. And uh, I listen to a lot of jazz players through mm-hmm. the years. I was lucky to have uh, two older brothers, and both of them were into really good music, and mm-hmm. they had tons and tons of records. And so they would, uh, even as a kid, they would make me listen to jazz stuff and to blues stuff. Bob Dylan and things that uh, maybe a kid wouldn't listen to. I think that rubbed off on me a lot. And then uh, my oldest brother, who was the big jazz head, he would always, he would make sure and find jazz stuff that he thought wouldn't be over my head mm-hmm. or that would be close enough to blues or rock what, what, that I could, could get it. You what's know? a good jazz album that like a younger rock player could get into pretty easily? Uh, speaking of like real jazz yeah. or fusion type. Or, or, Real, real jazz, or either one. Uh, Ones that it, it helped you, or I would say anything by Jim Hall. Anything Jim Hall played on, there's no way you could not learn from listening to Jim Hall. In my opinion, I mean he's he's one of the tastiest players I've ever heard, and Joe Pass the same way. I really like uh, so many people. I liked uh, even like Pat Martino, who's kind of uh, obscure in a lot of people's minds, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I thought he always played wonderfully. What I listen to mostly for my own 
uh, pleasure is saxophone players. Oh, really? Yeah, I listen to tons of Cannonball Adderley and Sonny Rollins and uh, Sonny Stitt. Uh, Miles Davis, you know, of course, there's always sax players playing with Miles. Mm -hmm. A lot of my favorite jazz records, I think you can learn a lot from, like, let's say, just talking about Miles. Kind of Blue is a great Miles record. Fillets de Kilimanjaro is a great Miles record. Are you a, are you a schooled player all, at all? I mean, No, uh, I took one uh, semester of theory one time just for my own peace of mind. Uh -huh. And it seemed to help a whole lot, but I kind of bought a theory book mm -hmm. and had been reading it prior to that. And uh, this was actually during high school. My uh -huh. high school decided they were going to offer a music theory course. Yeah. And uh, the music director at my high school and I were kind of friends. So uh, I signed up for the music theory course, and then he would, like, show me stuff beyond where the rest of the class was in his off time and stuff. So that's how you, I mean, you're, you seem like you know more of chords than your average, like, a rock player. I mean, yeah, I, I think it just comes from uh, trying to expand my horizons from day one, you know, like... Uh, I was never satisfied just being any kind of player. You know, mm -hmm. I always loved jazz, always loved blues, and always loved rock music. And then even like in 1980, when uh, David Allen Coe, who was just like country rock semi-star, I guess I shouldn't say that, but he's had hit records. I played on about nine of his albums. Uh, he offered me a job when I was 20. Uh, and at the time, it was a really good career move for me, so I took it, told him that I couldn't, see myself playing country music, which is what I interpreted his music as. <clears throat> and he said, well, I don't want a country guitar player. That's why I'm offering you this gig. I want a blues rock guitar player to round out the sound in my band. And I said, well, as long as I can play the way I want to play, then fine. So I played with him for about three and a half years and found myself like doing his records. It would be all studio musicians and myself. And so I learned a lot from these country musicians in the first place, most of those cats uh, play country music out of convenience. They also enjoy blues or jazz or whatever. Most of them really like jazz a lot. But I, I learned a lot from playing country music in a weird sort of way because I never liked country What music. did you learn in, in specifically? Just different angles of approaching the chords and melodically how to get in and out of chord changes without really uh, distracting from the melodic structure of the song. Mm -hmm. how to piece things together in a nice flowing way. I could never be happy playing country music, but I think I did learn a lot from it. It was just kind of odd. Yeah. I think anybody, when you step outside of your genre, so to speak, you can learn a lot. I think uh, anytime you do that, you're bound to expand your horizons. Yeah, that's probably good advice for younger players. Yeah, I think so. Don't be so bullheaded and stubborn about just playing what you think is what you like right now because for one your tastes are going to change and for two whenever you limit yourself as to what you listen to or what you try and be influenced by uh, you're making a mistake every great guitar player that i can ever remember reading interviews by when they listed their influences was always at least one that you never dreamed of like listen to bb king when he talks about his influences some of them are obvious t-bone walker that's an obvious influence uh, and there's bb but he said he also listened to Django Reinhardt. And Charlie Christian. Right. Yeah. You know, so that's what gave B.B. his different insight. If he just sounded like his contemporaries, then he wouldn't be able to uh, rise above. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about the live album. Why'd you guys decide to do one at this point in time? 
I think we kind of been looking forward to recording live the whole time since we've had the band back together. It seemed like the right thing to do to do at least one, and uh, in this case, two studio records before doing the live album, which is coincidentally what happened with the original. Yeah, right. Uh, I don't think it was like a preconceived plan or anything to do it that way, mm -hmm. but this band just is happier in a live situation. It's always been that way. I mean, Fillmore East was a Vanguard live record, and although the material and even the performances on the first two Allman Brothers records still stand up today, they don't necessarily stand up next to the Fillmore East. You know what I'm saying? Right. The live versions were just head and shoulders above the studio versions because the Allman Brothers has always been and always will remain a live band. Even on the, the two studio records that we've done since the band reformed, we set up live and play in the studio oh, really? with everybody recording live at once. And most of the solos that uh, myself and Dickie kept for the record uh, are live on the track as they went down. Wow, that's, that's so unusual. For... It's very unusual. Yeah. And that's not to say that there are not uh, a couple here and there weren't overdub. I think, think I had nine solos on the last album, and six of them were live, and three of them were overdub. That's great. Yeah, I mean, some bands, especially when they're recording live, they, they tighten up and they don't give a as good a performance. I mean, do you guys ever, when you're recording live, or is that just like a pleasure for you guys? Well, it's a pleasure, but I don't think there's any way of not tensing up a little bit. The perfect example for me would be that we recorded four nights in Macon, we recorded two nights in Boston, we recorded two nights in New York. Then we took a night off after the second night in New York and the third night in New York. We didn't record, and it was the best show, <laughs> you know. And it's like, I guess in the back of our minds, we all knew it was going to be. Yeah. Because we knew the trucks weren't out there, and we knew that we could do whatever we wanted to do, and there was no pressure. But I'm really pleased with the performances we got on the live record. It's just... You're always going to think about it. I think the best thing to try and do is trying to get yourself into a situation where you can record enough nights to where you can actually forget from time to time that you are recording. Yeah, it'd probably be best if they didn't tell you which night they're recording. Just yeah, park the truck out front. We even tried that approach. We told Tom Dowd, for all practical purposes, don't let us know what nights you're taking. <laughs> you know? All right. It's kind of bizarre. But uh, coincidentally... Uh, the night that I told you about that the trucks were not there yeah. that was our best show was also coincidentally 21 years to the day from the recording of the Fillmore which is really bizarre none of us put it together until after the fact Fillmore was done March, March 12th and 13th of 1971 and we recorded the 10th and 11th the 12th off and the 13th is the night that we all felt like was our best show and we didn't take it <laughs> That's great. Oh, well, well, you know, who knows? If we'd have taped it, might have sucked. All right. Well, can you give me like a just a quick breakdown of who's soloing where? I pretty much know. Uh, yeah, let me grab I got, I, CD. Okay. I'm sure you probably got one there. But, yeah. Uh, let's see. End of the line. Uh, Dickie takes the first solo, and then I take the slide solo, which uh, in the middle, which kind of breaks down dynamically. Then we're trading off at the end of the song. Sounds like you're a little undermixed on that one. Yeah, I, I feel that way on a couple of things, but when you're mixing a live record, it's not the same as mixing a studio record because, well, the, the players are constantly tweaking their volumes on stage, so you don't give a consistent level to the tape machine. So there's a lot more riding the faders in a, in a live record instead of like 
when you're overdubbing, you make sure everything's the exact level you want it. So there are a few parts uh, in there that I feel like could, could be a little stronger, but, uh, you know. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Right. <laughs> Blue Sky, I take the first solo, which is half lead guitar, half slide guitar. And then I switch uh, in the middle. If you listen, you can actually hear, like uh, I hit a open G with a harmonic and then reach into my pocket and pull the slide out and put it on. So there's like a, about a five or six beat pause where I'm trying to get my slide on my finger. But Dickie and I do a lot of stuff where just in the middle of a solo, we'll start uh, either trading or not so much trading fours like everybody does, but just bobbing and weaving. He'll leave a space, I'll put something in there, and uh, you know, part of it'll be harmony, part will be unison, part will be counterpoint. It's not planned out, it's just all experimental. Kind of like, uh, like Miles and Coltrane used to do, or like Coltrane and Cannonball used to do. A lot of that stuff that those guys did was unplanned, you know? They were just such great musicians that they could pull it off. Uh, Dreams, I play the slide solo. So what we did is Dwayne solo on the original version. Uh, the story I heard was that he had never played slide in the solo of Dream. Uh, he was playing just regular lead guitar, and he was kind of frustrated with what he had been playing. And during this particular performance, looked up and saw his slide sitting there, and just put it on in the middle of the solo and started playing. That's what I had heard about uh Dwayne solo in the original version of Dreams, which is, would explain why that's the only time he ever played in standard tuning uh, on an Alma Brothers record, uh, as far as slide, you know. I think he probably experimented a lot, but just never played much live. He obviously was quite at home on that particular solo. But what we did is we split it up. I mean, it's much longer, but Dickie plays the regular solo, and then uh, I play the, the slide solo. And there's some bobbing and weaving going on in that song yeah. as well, at the end of his solo. And it's different than we would normally do it, too. Uh, our normal approach to the transition from Dickie's solo to my solo would be like trading, straight trade back and forth. Mm -hmm. But in this version of Dream, it's, it's like there's no set amount of bars or beats that we're trading. It's just kind of uh, that intermingling approach. Do you like playing rhythm as much as lead? I enjoy playing rhythm guitar a whole lot when you can lock in with the rhythm section. Yeah. You know, as far as whether I like it as much as playing lead, if I, you know, it's almost if you had to cut off one of your arms, yeah. cut off. I would probably say that I enjoy playing lead guitar more than rhythm, but I really enjoy playing rhythm guitar. In some ways, I wish I was better at it because there are certain people that I listen to playing rhythm and I go, damn, that's just... You know, so good. Who's a good rhythm player? Well, Hendrix, yes. I thought, was always a great rhythm player. I would have actually liked to heard Hendrix play more with another guitar player so he could play more of his cool rhythm shit. But, you know, stuff like Little Wing and Angel and that random, <clears throat> during his live performances, he would go off into this great kind of uh, Curtis Mayfield on acid kind of Yeah. Thing, you know? I really love that kind of stuff. But yeah, I really enjoy playing rhythm a whole lot. That's great. What kind of, you're using uh, Les Pauls mostly? In the Allman Brothers, I use uh, Les Paul a lot of the time. Is that an old one or a new one? It's a 59 reissue. It actually was built for me in the, the custom shop at Gibson. That's probably my main guitar in this band. I also use a few Paul Reed Smith guitars that I use from time to time, live and in the studio. My other favorite guitar is uh, this 
Strat that I play, it's an American standard with Eric Clapton electronics. So it's kind of a hybrid. It just happens to be a really nice guitar. You know, I, I found it and just kind of, it has the really nice acoustic quality when you're playing it without being plugged in. You can make a, a, a good piece of wood sound good. The, if the guitar sounds good acoustically, you can put the right pickups in it, the right electronics. But I really love the Strat a whole lot because of the versatility of it. With this Eric Clapton mid-range control, you can make it almost sound like a humbucker. You know, so it's, uh, it's great because in the past, I could never play Strats because I always got tired of the sound. But uh, now that you can get like the best of both worlds out of one. It's it's really wonderful. And you're still you're using the Soldano amps? Yeah, I'm using Soldano pretty much all the time live. I have a few other things that I use uh, in the studio. I have this little Gibson amp that has a six inch Jensen speaker in it. It's tiny. It's like, I guess, made in the 50s. A little blonde tweed kind of uh, Gibson, I think they call it uh, GA-10 or something. I can't remember. But it's just this great... It's almost like the Hubert Sumlin tone, real shredding, real biting. But when I use the Strat through it, and you can add enough mid-range to make it nice and warm, or you can just go for that real obnoxious bluesy tone that, that it has, it's great. Do you tend to just plug straight into amps, or do you go through some effects? Well, recording, or I tend to plug straight in. The most I ever do is go through a little delay. But usually what I do in the studio is go straight in and, have, and monitor the delay. You know, uh, uh-huh. so I don't have to print it. But that Gibson amp I used on the Seven Turns album, I used on about half the record. Really? About half the solos even on that album are the little Gibson amp. But on the Shades of Two Worlds, it's pretty much all the Soldano. And um, how are uh, sort of uh, things going in the band? I, I heard from, a, I guess, a pretty good source that Dickie and Greg aren't the best of pals. And I was wondering, you know, does that add any spice or positive tension to the music? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I think sometimes rumors get kind of... Uh, Overblown? Yeah. But sometimes, I guess, uh, times that there are tension and stuff, who's to say that it doesn't help in some weird way? Really? The music. I know Miles Davis, I read his book, and he said that he used to try and keep uh, Herbie Hancock and Tony Williams and Wayne Shorter and Ron Carter, that band, Mm-hmm. He used to try and keep those guys pissed off because he said they played better. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Now, personally, I don't know if that's true or not. My general rule of thumb would be when people are happy, they play their best. But I know there have been nights uh, that I've gone out pissed off for whatever reason, whether it's because I was having equipment trouble or uh, whatever, and gone out and put all that energy into performing and then you end up uh, do it, playing really well and coming off stage and forgetting why you were even pissed off at first. All right. Music is an expression of the way you feel, and I think when you're soloing, you can combine Whatever. joy and happiness and frustration and mm-hmm. anger and passion and all these things into one solo because there's no law that says uh, you, you can't mix emotion in music. You know, so you, I think, uh, That's what makes beautiful music, you know, all these jazz players will be playing some beautiful melody for a minute, and then they play this dissonant thing, so atonal, uh, that it makes you feel different. So you see the, the band rolling on for a while. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think uh, the way we look at it is the music comes first. Since 89, when we put this band back together, the band has just gotten better and better. And we all knew in 89 that we had a, a nice chemistry, that it was a special thing, 
and that there was a chance that it might not be. So when we formed, we, we figured, well, yeah, this is a nice chemistry, and if it's going to get better and better, then we need to make sure that we stay on top of it and let the band grow. That's pretty much what's happened over the past three and a half years. <clears throat> I think as long as the band continues to get better at the rate it's, uh, it's been getting better, then we'd be crazy not to... Uh, Keep it going. Yeah. seems to be getting more popular on the road. I mean, it's like it seems like there's fans following you guys around like people follow the dead around. It's starting to happen in that way a lot, you know. Yeah. Uh, there are some similarities because we go out there every night and completely approach the songs from a different angle, you know. If you hear A Memory of Elizabeth Reed one night and you hear it again two nights later, it's completely different. The way we structure the set is a lot of the songs that have, that you have to solo a certain length of time, a lot of those songs are up front. And then the second half of the show is more jamming and stuff. You guys have another live album coming out? You know, the one that's out now is called First Set. We're looking at a second set. Mm -hmm. We have quite a bit of material in the can. We're trying to figure out what to put out for the second set. We kind of didn't want to do a two-CD set because with the recession and stuff, it'd be really expensive. And if you put out two, then you give people the option of buying both or just the one that they like the most. And rather than put them out side by side like uh, Guns N' Roses or Springsteen, uh -huh. we decided to to stagger the release so, you know, you could buy one now and one later. <laughs> Save up your money. Yeah, you know. When do you think that'll come out? Uh, I'd say probably in a couple of months. That's great. I mean, that's what we're projecting anyway. But, the, you know, and then I'm working on a solo project as well. Really? So I, d I don't know how, let's say, as an example, we may not work as much next year as mm -hmm. we worked this year. Yeah. And uh, people might be more involved in other projects. This is a solo album? Uh, or a band thing? or. It's a band thing for me. I put a band together in New York, and I've been playing a lot during my time off with those guys. I recorded some stuff in Memphis with uh, Chuck Lavelle playing piano and some guys down there that I really like a whole lot. Wow. It's not fair to look at it as like a solo. Album right. Because when I was asked to join the Allman Brothers, I was going to release an album then, uh, and I've kind of been putting it off because we've been so busy with the Allman Brothers for the past three or four years. I was going to do a record as early as 87 when uh, Dickie asked me to join his band and do his record, and I did a couple of tours with him. So then in the break, when we finished uh, his final tour, I thought, this is great. Now I'll do my solo record, or however you want to look at it. And he called me up and said, look, we're putting the Allman Brothers back together. Do you want to join? And I thought, well, yeah. here I go again. You know, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't pass it up, you know? Sure. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember, you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.